It's a phrase from popular movies. It's also a question that comes up in our daily life. The question is, is that even legal? We talk about the things that drive you crazy, the things you won't believe, and the things you need to know and understand. I'm attorney Bob Sewell, and this is the podcast, Is That Even Legal? Let's get started. The overturning of Roe versus Wade has sent shockwaves throughout our country. Decades of law disappeared overnight. It, it just gone, one decision. We just got through with a massive battle over gay marriage. And now Supreme Court justices have openly expressed that they want to reconsider those decisions, the ones that led to gay marriage. Whatever you feel about these decisions, Roe versus Wade, or Dobbs versus Jackson, which overturned it, or the gay marriage decision, whatever you feel about it, when a case is overturned, it, it sends an odd message to America. The concept of established law, of stare decisis, feels arbitrary. It feels unsettled. It feels political. Overturning laws on which the society relies tends to have a destabilizing effect, at least in our minds, if not in the actual society itself. Are we entering an era where the Constitution is less important than the Constitution of judges, the, the judges, how they feel inside? And are we going to enter an era where every few years, when the judges are flopped from liberal to conservative and back again. We have new decisions on the old subject. Today we have a guest, Alon Werman. He's a professor at ASU Law. He's a scholar on originalism and the Constitution. We may not agree politically, but this isn't a political show, and I don't agree with anyone. So, <laughs> but I do think that having this discussion about what it means to be overturned and what it means for our society is a conversation worth having. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Really, really glad to be here and excited to talk about these uh, topics. Okay. So I want to talk about a few cases to familiarize the listener about what I'm talking about being overturned. So we just talked about Roe versus Wade. It was overturned by Dobson versus Jackson. And it essentially ended the constitutional right to an abortion. Then there's Brown versus Bo Board of Education, uh, and it overturned the case Plessy versus Ferguson, which said that we could have segregation of the schools so long as they're separate but equal. Brown versus Board of, Board of Education said it's as long as they're separate, it's never equal. Citizens United, it overturns portions of a decision involving the Michigan Chamber of Commerce and basically had the effect of saying that corporations can participate in election activities and cannot be, you know, by the by law pushed out. Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton School District, it had the effect of making the school prayer cases look less established. That is the the thought that school sponsored prayer school sponsored prayer establishes uh, religion and violates the establishment clause. But what all these cases have in common, we could debate and you would do much more eloquently debate the pros and cons of each case. But what they all have in common is a flip-flop, a move from one set of law to another. Um, that bothers me. It bothers a lot of people. It's how do we have any faith in our Constitution if there's no consistency in the interpretation? Well, that's a great question, and we'll probably take the whole hour or however long we're going to be here uh, to unpack. Uh, you know, I'll say a few things um, to, to get us started. And the first thing is a lot of these decisions that have been overturned by the recent decisions themselves overturned expected settled expectations about what the law is. Roe v. Wade overturned the abortion laws of something like 30 plus states, almost two-thirds, if not more than two-thirds of the state. So that decision itself was arguably destabilizing, 
right? Plessy v. Ferguson, in a way, itself, right, overturned what the Republican expectation of the 14th Amendment was. And so these decisions and establishment clause, these, these initial school prayer cases saying that prayer in school uh, is an establishment of religion, also overturned settled expectations and settled understandings at that time of what the Constitution had meant uh, until then. And so it's sort of a two-way street, and we might have to disagree about this issue, which is I think it's hard to disentangle the question of precedent from the merits of these particular cases. Tell me about that. Also, for example, um, I'll start with Brown v. Board and Citizens United. It's very hard. Plessy v. Ferguson was so obviously wrong on the merits of the 14th Amendment. And this is – I have a book called The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment, where I talk about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. It has this – Privileges or immunities clause that nobody knows about because the Supreme Court messed it up in another big case in 1873 that should also be overturned, I hope. Okay, the slaughterhouse cases, which you may have heard about. Yep. But the clause says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What are the privileges and immunities of citizens? Uh, these are sort of the rights that uh, uh, basically they're civil rights under state law. At a minimum, it includes these fundamental rights that all free governments must respect by contract property property, gun rights, speech rights, and so on. And what the clause says is you cannot discriminate in the provision of that right against a class of your citizens. That would be an abridgment. And so is public education, you know, a civil right, uh, whether it was in 1868 or before, doesn't matter. It's if the state it's a civil right in 1954, 1955. If it's afforded to white person, white citizens in the states, then it's a civil right under state law. Uh, it's a privilege of U.S. citizenship in that state. And, uh, you know, the question then becomes whether separate but equal abridges that. And quite frankly, that's a merits question that is quite easy, right, which is there's this legendary law professor, Charles Black from Yale, who said who grew up in Texas. And he said, look, once judges open their eyes to what every Texas schoolboy knows, which is that these laws were enacted precisely to keep one race in subordination to another, then they obviously uh, violate the privileges or immunities clause, or in that case, at sure. that point, the equal protection clause. So on the merits, let me give you an easier case. Okay. Citizens United. Yeah. Okay? Citizens United, for as much as people hate it, is obviously a correct decision on the original meaning of the free press clause, right? The New York Times is a corporation, right? So if Citizens United was wrong, does that mean Congress could pass a law saying the New York Times can't uh, publish an editorial favoring one candidate or another on election day? Right? It's a corporation. No yeah. And there's there's no way in the Supreme Court in the 1960s, Alabama had a law that said that, that their newspapers could not editorialize about political candidates on election day. And the Supreme Court unanimously said that's ridiculous. That clearly violates the free press clause. And Citizens United, you know, for all this talk about evil corporations, it was an organization that had a corporate form, yeah. right, as most organizations do to avoid personal liability for things, that published a movie that was negative about a candidate, Hillary Clinton. Are we saying that co- that the Constitution, the free press clause, allows Congress to pass laws prohibiting private individuals from pooling their research together and publishing political editorial videos about a presidential candidate before the presidential election? It's insane. I've never understood what this whole, uh, 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 you know, fear about Citizens United has been. <clears throat> Maybe it could be cabined in some way, right, uh, uh, in general corporate you know, it, you know, spending on campaigns is one thing, but this was an independent expenditure, independent group just editorializing their view. If they can't do that, then why can the New York Times, right? There's also a corporation do it. Sure. So it's very hard to separate these cases from the merits. And I, I think the, sh- the short answer is when you have these earlier cases that got the Constitution so wrong and at that time, I think, disturbed settled expectations – is it really worse from a rule of law perspective or perspective about settled expectations for 50 years down the line to correct that error? Okay. So let me say, let's just say I get on board with everything you just said. Let's get even more fundamental. Now, you're obviously a really bright guy and I do okay. And, 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 and you're really good at the law. That's, that's quite obvious. Let's think about it from, a consumer of the law perspective, the average Joe. Because when the average Joe walks in and he says, the law is one way, and 
And these really bright guys who and gals who sit up in their in their holy thrones of the Supreme Court say this is the way the law is. And you know, Bob Sewell, who's never studied the law before, you know, I'm I'm a fantastic, I'm a fantastic framer, I'm a fantastic plumber, but I don't know jack about the law. I can only rely on them. And when they say the law is X and now it's not X, am I concerned? Yeah, you, look, judges make mistakes. Uh, judges make mistakes as all humans do. They err in their judgments occasionally. And I would think that it is a better system for judges who make mistakes of the magnitude uh, that a con- <clears throat> that an erroneous constitutional precedent is. Uh, should reverse that mistake. And the reason I say that is because there is a difference when it comes to stare decisis and precedent with respect to common law, with respect to statutes, and with respect to constitutional interpretation, right? People often think that stare stare decisis, which is Latin for it has been decided, right? The thing has been decided and should stick with that, uh, is uh, part of the judicial power. And that judges, and therefore it's stare decisis is in some way constitutionally compelled or at a minimum constitutionally uh, permissible. But I don't think that's true, right? Judges have the judicial power. The judicial power is the power to apply established law to, not to make law, right? It's to apply established law to cases and controversies that come before the judges and to establish disputes. And this looks, uh, and to resolve disputes. And this comes uh, in very different forms depending on the source of law with which we are dealing. So common law, common law doesn't come from statutes. Common law comes from tradition. It comes from practice. And judges over centuries in England and in America, some people say they made common law. I think it's more accurate to say they tried to discover sort of the customs of the people in a yeah. particular area with their contracts and torts. And so they discover these laws. They enunciate and elucidate these principles in judicial opinions where there's no other legal text guiding you. Today there is, right? Today there are contract codes and tort codes, but historically there wasn't. And not all states have complete tort codes, right? And, and, and contract codes. And so when judges for the first time reduce these legal principles, these customary principles to writing, it makes sense to say, okay, the, this issue has now been decided. It has been reduced to this writing, this judicial opinion, and people right. should expect to stick with that. Now, with statutes, look, it's a bit different because you're, there's another source of law. There's a lawmaker, a lawgiver, and we expect judges to faithfully interpret the text of the lawgiver to get at the intent of the lawgiver because the lawgiver presumably has the authority to act. And yes, their statutes can be vague. They can be ambiguous. They can be broad. And in that respect, when a precedent settles or sort of establishes, ascertains in specific cases the meaning of these statutes, just just like the common law judging. We expect them to stick to that interpretation over time to uh, create these settled expectations about the meaning of a statute. But suppose they go wrong. Okay. Suppose they go wrong. At least the lawgiver can clarify the law by passing a new law, or they can repeal the law, or you know they, they can always reverse not the judgment of the court in that particular case, but they could clarify the law going forward. They could reverse the reasoning, if you will, going forward. The matter is entirely different in constitutional cases. If the Supreme Court messes up a constitutional case, especially a case in which the Supreme Court takes something out of the democratic process, like in Roe versus Wade, Okay. Okay. Uh, then all of a sudden, the damage of sticking to that erroneous precedent uh, is is much worse. Now, look, you might. There are times when the Supreme Court has precedents, um, uh, and so if you and look, if you're on the liberal side, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Right. You, you should feel this way about the gun cases. Why? Because the gun cases, like Bruin uh, and Heller and McDonald, they take gun policy issues out of the states. And constitutionalize them if the court was wrong, okay? which maybe it wasn't. And if it wasn't, it wasn't. Okay. But if the court was wrong, that's a lot of damage because now none of the 50 states can, you know, potentially experiment with these policies that the Supreme Court has said are, is, is off the table. So I really think we have to separate out common law and statute law and constitutional law. And it is by no means obvious to me that it would be a better world if every time the Supreme Court got a constitutional precedent wrong, we should just stick to it because of settled expectations. Well, let me let me push a little bit here. And that's and that is when we talk about the Constitution and we talk the Constitution has very 
few words. I mean, not a lot of people have read it, about but if you about read 8, 000, it, yeah. if you read it, and you, the Constitution has very few words, the interpretation of the Constitution would fill, you know, you know, and the, the biggest libraries in the world, and then some. So, you know, that whole process. And what you said about when we look at common law and how we we look at uh, the the mores as a society, we look at what people expect from their society, isn't that the answer here to me? Well, the original question, or is it the answer that it's okay to go back and reconsider? Yeah, I I I, I think it is. I think it is for the reasons that um, I've said, and you know. Again, the question is, what do we expect from a legal system in a way, right? Precedent, as you've just suggested, is one important element of the rule of law. It is one important element of a legal system. But in my view, which shared by intuitively anyway, but I think many Americans, another element of the legal system is that judges don't get to make things up, right? And if judges made things up, Right? Judges aren't the ones who create law. Our legislatures create law. And if they misinterpret a statute or if they misinterpret what we, the people said in the Constitution, right? We're the lawgiver in that context, right? Then there's something that bothers us with respect to the rule of law in that context too. Because precedent, stare decisis is one element of the rule of law. But you know what? So is judges getting things right and following legal texts and following the authoritative intent of a lawgiver and not just making up law themselves. So these are two very different Things and you kind of have to balance them in an important way. Which yeah, I don't know so, if yeah. No, I like what you're saying because in in a way, what you're saying is um, you don't like Dobbs versus Jackson. You prefer Roe v. Wade. That's fine. Um, take it up with your legislature and vote them out of office. Right. In that ca- in that case, because it sends it back to the people. Right. If same thing with the establishment clause cases, it sends it back to the people. There are obviously other precedents that were overturned where it took things away from the people, like Brown v. Board. Right. right. Brown v. Board took the desegregation option off the table. So why are we okay with that? Why are we okay with the precedents that take things away from the democratic process? Well, we're okay with it when they're obviously right and they advance some important, you know, value, you know, in that case, obviously racial equality. But in but more importantly, it was just right. It was just right. It was a right decision under the text of the Constitution. And so we let that rule of law value being governed by the text, if you will, by the intent of the lawgivers, trump this other rule of law value, which is stare decisis or precedent, because it was so obviously right. And maybe that's why you can't disentangle the merits, to go back to what I said earlier. Okay, that is important, too. And I want you to opine a little bit more about that, because whenever, when I explain to people, my my clients, uh, about precedent, right, you don't get to Bob Sewell as a, because the case is easy. By the time it ends up on my desk, uh, there's a lot of gray, and I can't tell you exactly the way it's going to go down. And and I'm going to tell you that there's going to be a fight because that's that's every single one of my cases, almost, almost every single one. And so, you know, I have to explain to people that I need to look at these cases and the cases are like analogies or morals or, you know, stories that I can gain uh, information from. What do they call that? Metaf- metaf- I don't know. I'm yeah, terrible um, with the fables, fables or, right? Yeah. And I look at these things and I say, am I, is my case more like, you know, story one or is it more like story two? And if it's more like story one, does that make me win or make me lose? Or is it more like story two? And 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 we tell these stories and then in court and we then compare at the end of the day. So no case is ever without its story, right? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that what you're trying to say? Yeah, well, I mean, the, your point about having a lot of gray area is a challenge um, because we have judges deciding these really controversial, politically significant disputes uh, where the Constitution might not be particularly clear. Uh, And then, you know, that goes to the question, well, if the law isn't particularly clear, but they have to decide these cases somehow, or they have to resolve the questions before them, how do they decide them? And then what is the role of stare decisis in light of sort of that ambiguity? And actually here, I will say, I mean, there's a couple things that I like to say when people raise this, which is, 
The Constitution's provisions, for the most part, are not nearly as gray and ambiguous and as broad as some people tend to think. Okay, so there's this famous sweeping clause, the elastic clause, the necessary and proper clause. There's the Ninth Amendment, you know, which uh, reserves to the people unenumerated rights. How does that work exactly? There's due process of law, the equal protection of the laws. There's the privileges and immunities of citizens. These sound like these broad and open-ended provisions. And it has been the burden of a lot of my scholarship, especially on this 14th Amendment, to basically say, actually, they have pretty discrete legal meanings that are pretty relatively easy to apply. Do they apply to new and changing circumstances? Right, of course, which is why the Fourth Amendment applies to GPS devices that police officers put on cars, right? We're not uh, limited to horse-drawn carriages and mm-hmm. and parchment mm-hmm. and things like that. But the principle of the Fourteenth Amendment uh, is actually, I think, pretty clearly ascertainable. The court has gotten it wrong uh, uh, along the way. Um, and so... Uh, again, the point is uh, that um, a lot of these provisions are not nearly as ambiguous as people think. But to the extent that they are, then in that situation, I do think stare decisis is important in constitutional cases. And I think this actually is sort of goes back to the framers, the founders' theory of stare decisis. They understood. Tell me what right? you th- think the theory is. Yeah, so so Ma- Madison, uh, I think, I don't know if he's the originator of this, um, but he's the most famous expositor of it, if you will. He has a, one of his Federalist papers, Federalist number 37. He talks about the indeterminacy of language in general. And in particular, when you're creating a new type of government, a new regime with these new concepts that can only be imperfectly illustrated with ex- and, and reduced to writing with existing language, which of course developed with old concepts, right? I mm-hmm. mean, how do you describe new concepts? You often have to have neologisms, new words for things. And so he said, look, it's, it's clearly going to be imperfect. It's not going to be obvious what the answer is to all these disputes. And what he proposed in the course of that Federalist paper and other writings was that within the range of ambiguity, within the range of imprecise or underdeterminate meaning, within that range, okay, then precedent becomes much more important. Okay? Now, he, he called this process of liquidation. This is the process of liquidation, not liquidating an estate, but similar. It liquidates the meaning. It sort of uh, uh, fixes what otherwise might be oh, unclear right, right, meaning. Right, right, so right. you liquidate the meaning. Okay. okay. So uh, I don't know if you do any bankruptcy cases as part of, you know, probate or anything, but yeah, different it, kind of liquidation. Okay. But within probate's a lot yeah, like bankruptcy. So I'm a, thinking different, different. Okay. Different. Yeah. Yes. Different kind of of liquidation. But so within so there are a couple things I say about this. Uh, the first is that judges, you know, one five four decision in the Supreme Court does not liquidate ambiguous constitutional meaning. Okay. Constitution- so when I have a split decision, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, you know, sure about how this goes. Is that what you're saying? You, well, I mean, for a number of reasons. One being that even Supreme Court decisions, in theory, are only binding on the parties to the case. Right? Which means, you know, this is. Let's take Dred Scott for an example. Yeah. Okay. What did Abraham Lincoln – you listen to Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. They were arguing over the Dred Scott decision that held that uh, any American of African descent could not be a citizen, right, within the meaning of the Constitution and could not have the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. This was clearly wrong. It totally eviscerated in dissent by Justice uh, Benjamin Curtis, which, by the way, people don't talk enough about. But you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? Douglas, you know, makes Lincoln out to sound like a nullifier in a way, right? Douglas, Stephen Douglas, who says, I'm bound by the Supreme Court. They've had the final word about this. Does Lincoln, how does Lincoln plan to uh, uh, reverse the Supreme Court with mob violence, right? And Lincoln had to explain, no, look, the Supreme Court's judgment is binding on Dred Scott and Dred Scott's master. I'm not purporting to tell a mob to go to and and set Dred Scott free through brute force and private violence. That judgment is decided. But the Supreme Court's reasoning is not binding on the other departments of government or necessarily in future Supreme Court cases as a political rule. So, for example, okay, again, what did Chief Justice Taney hold in Dred Scott? He said that free black persons in the United States, okay, so uh, not enslaved persons, but nevertheless persons of African descent, these okay. free black population, are not citizens of the United States, okay? And therefore, Dred Scott couldn't sue in the courts and, and wasn't entitled to privileges and immunities under Article 4 of the Constitution. We can get into that. When Lincoln was president, well, sorry, <laughs> when Lincoln was president, yeah. okay, he uh, was confronted with the issue of whether to give coasting license 
licenses to free black sailors and whether to issue passports to uh, free black persons in the United States under the law of the United States at the time. Lincoln could only issue passports and licenses to citizens of the United States. Okay. Well, Dred Scott, the Supreme Court said, well, free black persons are not citizens of the United States. And Lincoln said, okay, that's binding on Dred Scott. Okay. It is not binding on me as president when I make decisions involving questions like passports, which will never come up to the Supreme Court, by the way. Some cases won't go up to the Supreme Court. So he issues license to free black sailors and he issues passports to free black persons because they're citizens of the United States. I'll give you one more beautiful example. Okay. Okay. This is what some scholars have called the riddle of Hiram Revels. Who is Hiram Revels? He was the first African-American senator okay, from Mississippi uh, in, in during Reconstruction in 1870. Okay, what are the qualifications in the Constitution to be a United States senator? You have to have been seven years, or is it nine? Shoot, I think it's seven, but maybe it's nine. I'm going to say seven. Seven years, a citizen of the United States. Okay, well, what's the problem? This is 1870. In Dred Scott, the Supreme Court held that free black persons were not citizens of the United States. This was not overturned until the 1868 when the 14th Amendment declaring all persons born here to be citizens of the United right, States. Right, right, right. So was Hiram Revels only a citizen of the United States for two years and thus ineligible to be a sitting United States senator? Well, the Senate, which decides the qualifications of its own members under Article One of the Constitution, debated the issue and said, we disagree with the Supreme Court. Uh, we think Dred Scott was wrong on the day it was decided, and we think Hiram Revels was always a citizen of the United States, no matter what Dred Scott said, the court in Dred Scott said, and therefore they sat him right. as a senator. And, and there we have – And we this have a- is how the process is liquidated. This is how meaning is liquidated. Through numerous discussions and adjudications among multiple actors, multiple judges, multiple courts, Supreme, uh, uh, but not just Supreme Court cases and not just court cases, debates in the Senate – Debates in Congress, debates in the executive, right? Debates in the states. Think of the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions over the alien and sedition laws. That's how precedent, you know, that's how meaning, ambiguous meaning becomes liquidated. That is a theory of precedent that I could get behind. You're, you're creating a picture in my mind, okay? And the picture I have in my mind is this, have this country. And I started with the proposition that I'm on, I'm uncertain. I am unstable. I don't like having my world rocked and I don't like the change. And what you're creating in my mind is get over it, right? Because or at least a little bit of doubt yeah. that that it's okay because we're going to be continually bumping up against each other in the world of ideas and the world of, of what we think is right and wrong of this country. We're going to continue to fight it out and we're going to fight it out within the laws and and the prior precedent and and we're going to push the boundaries this part of being in a dynamic society so you have me in this in a different in a different headspace right now about the change about overturning well that's good you know my goal is with my students to get them in a different uh headspace but let me yeah let me push back yeah please that's why you're here let me push back a little bit Otherwise, I'm just on a soapbox. So. We, we, we have this concept in judicial interpretation called originalism. What is it? Oh, my gosh. Well, you're not really pushing back. You're actually teeing it up. I'm going to see it up. Quite, quite nicely. So this is, you, you, I think you know, is uh, the subject of my first book, A Debt Against the Living. By the way, to the extent I could shamelessly self-promote to all your listeners shame, out there. Shame, shame, uh, do it. The greatest virtues of my two books, this A Debt Against the Living and The Second Founding, uh, is that they're short. They're only like 140 pages. They're cheap. Okay. They're like 20 bucks on Amazon. And they have really amazing covers. Okay. Now, <laughs> I also happen to think they both have the fourth virtue of being correct. But that is a matter of uh, uh, more a contentious matter, a matter of disputation. Uh, okay. So this goes to the subject of my first book. So what is originalism? Uh, and originalism is just this idea that we should interpret the Constitution's texts with its original meaning, right? With the meaning that its words would have had to the framers who wrote it and the authors that ratified it. But really, when you think about it, okay, I think originalism stands for a more basic proposition, which is that there's a distinction between what the law is and what the law ought to be and whether the law is enforceable if it's not necessarily what you want it to be. And so 
just very briefly, like, let me give you an example, right? Okay. If you found a fried chicken recipe, okay, this is from a famous Law Review article that Gary Lawson, who's in Boston. Uh, if you found a fried chicken recipe in your great, 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 great grandmother's attic and you carbon date it to 1788, right? Okay. Or 1789, okay? And it was written in Philadelphia, okay? How would you interpret this recipe for fried chicken, right? How would you interpret it? Well, you know, think you would use its public meaning, okay? Not this secret or esoteric or poetic meaning, right? It's a recipe. It's an instruction, Right. And so just to be clear, this recipe, it's not a Socratic dialogue, okay? okay. It's not a poem. It's not a novel, right? I, I totally buy this idea that some texts, you know, can be interpreted in multiple ways and the authors intend them to be interpreted in multiple ways. You know, think of Socratic, you know, esoteric Socratic dialogues, the persecution and the art of writing, speaking to two audiences uh, so you don't get in trouble uh, with the conventional wisdom. But sorry, I'm going a little too in the weeds here, okay? this is How would you interpret a fried chicken recipe, right? And it's like you'd use its public meaning because it's an instru- otherwise it'd be a terrible instruction. And I think you'd use its original meaning. Right, the meaning the the author, the creator of the recipe intended to convey at the time it was written. Right, so that n- none of this is to decide, to say that there isn't going to be interpretive challenges. Okay, okay. I want to be clear about that. Right, so interpret uh, like ambiguity, uh, breadth, and so on. So what if it said add pepper to taste? Well, what do we do with that? Add pepper to taste. I mean, whose taste is it? Does it vary from judge to judge, generation to generation? Uh, so it, it will certainly be the case, I think, that faithful interpreters of the recipe will arrive at a sort of a range of, of plausible results in the world. Okay, okay. Right? So a range of fried chickens, right? So let me, but, but the last point I'll say is, okay, okay say, say, say it's add pepper to taste. Suppose modern-day fried chicken eaters don't like pepper on their chicken. Suppose they like rosemary instead. Could a modern-day chef just add rosemary to the recipe instead? I think well, the chef could do it. But make no mistake about it. That That's not interpreting the yeah, recipe, yeah. right? It's amending the recipe. It's changing the recipe. Well, this is the Constitution. It is, it, it is a recipe for government. It is an instruction to our legal officials. The Constitution is not a poem. It's not a poem, okay? The Declaration of Independence is more of a poem. All right, okay? let me push back. Now, sure. and, this, and so you've got this teed up exactly what I wanted to push back on. Okay, let's take this analogy of the recipe to its logical extent. Now, if I if I... If I want to batter up my fried chicken in advance and, it's, and, and I want to put it in my egg yolk and, uh, and some sort of meal batter and I add flour to the meal, right? So if I t- do this recipe, the same recipe, and I harvest from the local, local areas where I'm at, I'm going to have different protein contents in that flour. I might be using uh, an, an egg from a from a, uh, a chicken that has a different chicken, and then I would if I was say in the north, where my flour and my meals are going to be a slightly different variety. You know, Arizona is famous because all our wheat is has a super high protein content, really good for certain types of applications. You know, but if I go to a more a wetter climate, I'm not going to have that same thing. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know, no, necessarily that my recipe in place one is the same thing as in place two. But there's more than that when we talk about originalism, because when we look at, we want to know who's originalism. And that's my problem when I hear people talk about originalism, because, you know, John Dickinson, I went to a law school that was named after John Dickinson, and he is famous for being on the wrong side of every debate in America. And, but he had a long, distinguished career. He was one of the originally founding fathers. And his interpretation of what went into that document and what was the secret recipe is going to be a whole lot different than, than uh, Adam's, right? Yeah. Then, so yeah. There's a lot whose to say. originalism yeah. do I get to? Yeah, well, let's, first of all, that is a very good point about the fried chicken recipe ingredients, okay? <laughs> and so let me say how a originalist would respond to them, right? Because okay, I, I, I do think that there are, uh, there are responses to this, right? The first thing is, right, the referent, uh, um, uh, the, the meaning, okay, there, there are two sort of layers of answers, okay? One is that the meaning so, sort of, uh, um, how shall I say this? Right? Linguistic drift is not an acceptable way to interpret the Constitution. So let me give you an example, okay? okay? The Seventh Amendment secures the right to a jury trial in any civil cases involving at least $20. Yeah. Is that 20 American dollars? Do you peg it to inflation? Yeah. What are you 
do? Well, it's actually the Spanish dollar, right? If we go back, which is what they talked oh, about, really? right? Yeah. I think you still I have, have no an inflation point. Uh, yeah. But, the, right, so the fact that we now call something else a dollar, okay, I don't think means that we can look at the Seventh Amendment and say, oh, it says $20. We call this thing dollars today. Well, that's not what they were talking about, right? You know, that, that, that that's not the meaning. Domestic, okay, so Article 4 guarantees the states of the union, you know, against invasion, insurrection, uh -huh. domestic violence. All what right. do they mean by domestic violence? Insurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? They did not mean spousal abuse, right? Congress is not empowered to regulate spousal abuse in the states unless we're talking about maybe 14th Amendment um, uh, and so on. So linguistic drift doesn't change, right? So if for some reason, okay, flour was actually a set of X, Y, and Z ingredients in 1788. But today, flour is A, B, and C ingredients, and it's a totally different thing. Then I think it's a different recipe. I don't think we're faithfully following the recipe. I think this thing called flour, composed of ingredients A, B, and C, is not the same thing that flour is referring to in the recipe. And it's a different meaning. The, the recipe means something else. It doesn't reach that A, B, and C. Okay, that's the first thing I'll say. Okay. Okay. But the second thing I'll say is, right, it depends on how broadly the Constitution is written or this recipe is written, right? Mm -hmm. This is where the necessary and proper clause comes in. And there's an analogy here because they knew that they had to specify the great important powers. Congress had to be given the power of taxation, right? If Congress didn't have explicitly spelled out the power to tax, would Congress just have the power to tax? No, of course not. Declare war? Regulate commerce among the states, can't do it, okay? But there's a necessary and proper clause, right? Which is this grants Congress's power to pass all laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. What is this clause? It's a grant of incidental powers, powers that are kind of lesser, uh, of, of lesser importance, right? Which if Congress, if, if the Constitutional Convention had specified every lesser power, right? Say incorporating a bank, right? To help the United States with its finances or something like that. If it had to, enumerate all of these lesser powers, right? Yep. Where does Congress get a, a power to make crimes, to make perjury a crime, for example? <laughs> it's not in there, right? right? So it right. must be necessary and proper to carry into execution the judiciary's power or something like that, sure. right? If, if the convention had to write all of these down, Right. It would have the Constitution would have had a pro, the prolixity of a legal code. Right. This is what Chief Justice Marshall said in McCulloch v. Maryland. Right. Which is why they didn't. They laid out the great important powers, and then they said incidental powers will change from time to time. Very Congress can do them as long as they're truly minor, incidental. Okay. Right. And carry into execution some government power. Well, it, how how does this translate to this fried chicken recipe? Right. Well, maybe really when they're saying flour or batter, it doesn't really matter, right, how much proportion of wheat or salt, right? The point is you're supposed you're trying to get this crispy, you know, like outer layer to the chicken. And as long as ingredients A, B, and C equally do that to X, Y, and Z, then maybe the X, Y, and Z and A, B, and C components are the lesser ingredients, right, that are still consistent, right, with this task of making this fried batter or so on, right? So there's an analogy. I can always come up with an analogy, <laughs> right, to some clause of the Constitution. I forgot in your second question, but that's all. Well, let me, ask you, yeah. let me ask you about... Um, uh, we, uh, on one hand, we have the concept and the judicial interpretation of originalism. And, uh, you know, I'm going back to my law school days here. <coughs> on the other hand, we have this, con this concept and interpretation that the Constitution is a living, right? Yes, the living Constitution. The living Constitution. Um, uh, or as Justice Scalia used <laughs> to say, the Constitution is dead, dead, dead. <laughs> so that is, that is the debate. Okay, and I got to be honest with you. When it when it came to constitutional law, I just it would the constitutional scholars drove me crazy because I'm a very practical guy, and so I'd hear these judges, not judges, I'd hear these constitutional scholars back in law school, and 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 I've had to litigate a few constitutional issues along the way, and I always take it from a very straightforward pr practice, but they would just they would talk about it like, and there it is, and that's the way it is, and. You you can't see that, and I and my practical mind is grinding through these issues, and I'm like, I no, I, I don't. It doesn't seem so clear to me, pal. And um, anyways, tell me what we do. The, we do tend to be more confident about our conclusions yeah. than the <laughs> evidence would warrant. I do think uh, <laughs> academics generally are uh, susceptible to that. Yes. Tell me what this. Give me the most favorable favorable description of living constitution. Sure, I, I, I can do that. And thank you for the challenge because okay. 
Because no, to, to engage in these debates, right, you should be able to reconstruct the best argument for the opposition and interpret their arguments in their best possible light. And this, by the way, is true just generally about political arguments today. It's like too many people create these straw man type arguments, both about originalism or the opposite or about anything in politics. And it's like, let's be more charitable. You know, let's sure. be more charitable. People have legitimate, genuine disagreements, and they're not just trying to be jerks and trying to be snarky. Some people on Twitter are. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but most academics, I, I don't think so. So here's what I would say. Okay. Um, I don't think, okay. So what I would say, the best case for living constitutionalism or non-originalism, right, uh, would go something like this, right? They would say, look, okay, or look, we don't deny that there is this thing, this concept of original public meaning of legal texts. And they might even say, we don't deny that ordinarily we try to give legal effect to the original public meaning of laws, say, like statutes. But the Constitution is different. Why is the Constitution different? Okay, because our Constitution happens to be very old, Okay. They'll say this is the premise, right, of the living constitutional argument. It's old and its principles are outdated. They're not ideal. They need to be changed, right, to make them work for a modern day society. And it turns out that the amendment process is particularly challenging, right, in the American context. Oh, heck, right? heck yeah, yeah. Would this be the same? Would we have this debate over living constitutionalism and originalism if the Constitution could be amended by 26 states? I don't think so, yeah. by the way. I don't know that we'd be having this debate. So the so the, if all of these premises of the non-originalist or the living constitutionalists are true, okay, then non-originalism isn't crazy. It is not a crazy second best method of updating the meaning and content of the Constitution over time. Okay? And it's problematic. Yeah. It's problematic. I mean, because, right, I mean— I don't, there, there is a there is a problem with that philosophy in that you're pushing the document outside the bounds of its original words, which then creates this overturned perspective, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, it certainly creates the perspective that judges are overturning the written text of we the people and, and unsettling expectations, which maybe later will get reversed or overturned by another Supreme Court case. But right, that's the tension, right? Every time judges get an initial case wrong, that is then liable to future overturning. In that initial decision, they have arguably overturned what we the people said in the Constitution. Now, that, but look, if everybody agrees that what we the people said in the Constitution is terrible and the, look, the amendment process is just too hard, then maybe we just accept a constitutional system in which judges do get to make constitutional law, if you will. It's still constrained. They're not totally pulling out of thin air. Theory Theories of precedent become more important, right? Since that's the right. theme of our talk. Theories of precedent become more important, right? When you're do, dealing with the living constitutionalism. So some people call it the common law constitution or common law constitutionalism. Because if at the point that you agree that you sort of rejected the founder's constitution and judges have to do some of this work of updating, well, if, if we're going to let judges update, you better be very careful about the process at which you update. It better be very piecemeal. It better be very careful. It better be very justified, kind of like com- the common law that we talked about, right. where judges are reducing these principles to the first time that previously weren't in writing. Well, common law constitutionalist judges are reducing new principles, you know, sort of tethered to the text of the Constitution, but ultimately they can diverge from it. And so it becomes like common law judging where precedent becomes much more important. But let me say one thing about this, okay? Because before I'm accused of of being too pro-living constitutionalist, okay? Okay. (laughs) Um, Which is, I don't think living constitutionalism is actually a theory of interpretation. And, And here's what I mean by that. I think it's a theory of constitutional change, okay? It's a theory about where the content of our law comes from. Here's what I mean. Even in the common law constitutionalist system, okay, something is going to get its original public meaning, right? Right. The judicial opinions, okay? So when the courts in the common law constitution, right, issue judicial opinion, how do we, the people, figure out what it tells us to do and what we're allowed to do or we're not allowed to do? We read it. And we say, okay, we're reading it in English. We're reading it in its ordinary public meaning. We're presuming the judges aren't using secret meaning, right? Yep. So the judicial opinions are interpreted with their original public meaning. And when a police officer tells you, stop, you can't do that, you know, it's like, how do you interpret the police officer's words with their original meaning? You know, you don't right. say, well, officer, if we interpret your words in a living, breathing way, no, you don't do that. Something in the common law constitutional system is still going to get its original public meaning. It's the debate ultimately between originalism and living constitutionalism 
is where does that where does the content of our constitutional law come from? What are we going to give original public meaning to? The text under the glass of the National Archives? Or the texts of the PDF files that the judges put up every Thursday and Monday, you know, on the Supreme Court website. That's the debate. Who gets to make the substance and there of our are, constitutional the, law? There are democracies. They do not have written constitutions, right? Yes, there there are. And they have this judicial created constitution. Uh, sort of, right? I mean, the British Constitution, right? They have a constitution. It's an unwritten constitution. I mean, it, what do I mean by unwritten? Okay, certain important fundamental principles are written somewhere, right? Magna Carta, I think, still has three operative provisions. You okay. know, even <laughs> right. eight hundred some years later, they have other important constitutional documents. They have a Bill of Rights of sixteen eighty nine, which doesn't protect the people; it protects legislators. It protects Parliament. Okay. They have the Act of Settlement, okay, of seventeen oh one. They have other sort of these important texts written. But what makes the British Constitution unwritten okay, is that there isn't a higher law constitution that binds the parliament. If tomorrow parliament wanted to repeal Magna Carta or wanted to repeal the Act of Settlement, which gives lifetime tenure to judges, okay, they could do it. They could do it with the royal assent. I mean, it's still around, but you know, the royal veto hasn't been you know, doled out, dished out uh, for 300 some years, right? Uh, so they could do it. What makes our system a written constitutional system is we have a higher law constitution that binds even our parliament, our Congress. And that's sort of the difference. So in the UK, you know, they have a judicial review, but judges are largely interpreting constitutional principles that derive from statutes. They largely interpret statutes themselves. They're advancing the, the common law. And at any time, okay, the parliament could come in and change the law, change what those judges have done. Uh, and so it's a very different dilemma what we have here. And we have – and but I will say that originalism requires more from the people, right? It does. I mean yes. if we are going to proceed and have, yes. have uh, politicians that are appointing originalist judges with that philosophy, then we the people damn well better know – what's happening in the world and be voting the right people yeah. in the office. And Am look I at, right? Yes. And look at, yes. And, and look at Kansas, you know, and the, uh, the election they just had over a Roe v. Wade, if you will, uh, amendment to the Kansas constitution and abortion right. constitution, right? It's so yeah, the, our constitution, right? As much as it preserves liberty is rests on the premise that mankind is capable of self-government. Right. And there's this beautiful tension in the Federalist Papers where, you know, in the early Federalist Papers, they talk about the depravity of mankind and how, you know, if men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary <clears throat> and so on. But then they also talk about mankind's capacity for self-government. I do think for too long, we've presumed that the people, especially progressives for what it's worth, but also there are conservative voices doing this now too, right? Conservatives. I oh, Okay. Well, sorry. Let me finish my thought. I was getting sure. ahead of myself. For too long, right? I think the progressive view Okay, now maybe I'm being unfair to progressives. Maybe I'm violating my rule <laughs> from earlier about being charitable. The progressive rule to me seemed to be that if we can win through democracy, we prefer democracy. If we can't, we prefer the courts. Right. Today, there are some conservatives who are exactly the same way. Look at the Roe v. Wade. There are now conservatives who say that a, per that, that a fetus is a person within the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment, and therefore abortions are unconstitutional in all 50 states, right? I yeah. think what they're saying, same-sex marriage, I, I have this common good constitutionalism. You might hear this about like Adrian Vermeule at Harvard, Hadley Arcus and some others, Josh Hammer at Newsweek, okay? They seem to think, in, if Obergefell came around, like they actually wrote this, okay, in, in an article in the American Mind, okay, which is a publication of the Claremont Institute. They wrote this manifesto where a they- conservative yes, institute. Yes, it's a, it's a conservative institute. And they said, Justice Scalia shouldn't have lamented in Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case. He shouldn't have lamented the loss of the democratic process. He should have made a substantive defense of marriage as between a man and a woman. And I'm like, why? Why is that the judicial role, right? I, the, my whole sort of political ethos and constitutional ethos, right, has always been that most of these questions are not uh, these politically, morally, economically, socially, culturally salient questions are not actually answered by the Constitution. The Constitution does guarantee the most essential rights to free government, speech, press, self-preservation, if you will, in the Second Amendment that's open to debate, right, due process rights. 
Lots of due process, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. It, like all of these are a lot of due process guarantees. And of course, there's this equality guarantee in the 14th Amendment. But other than that, the Constitution leaves most of these fundamental questions to the democratic process where it expects that we, the people, will debate them and deliberate them. So I like to say, you know, quipping from Justice Scalia, that our Constitution may be dead, right? But the democracy that it creates is very much a living democracy that, as you say, depends, relies on, and assumes the capacity of mankind, you know, to govern itself or people to govern themselves. All right. I want to end where I began. Do I need to be, as a citizen of the United States, concerned that that because something was overturned, that we're on the wrong track? No, but I do think you need to be active as a citizen in the political and democratic process. Most of these cases that are overturning prior precedent, especially war and court era precedents, this era of judicial activism, are for the most part going to be returning issues to the people. And that means you have to fight these issues either in Congress or in my case, I prefer in the state legislatures because I like diversity. I'm somewhat sure. libertarian and I kind of <laughs> like a free market and I like a free market of policy ideas too. So, so these should be fought out in the democratic process. It is true. It is true that some of these Supreme Court cases are going to be taking things out of the democratic process, like in the gun rights case, right, or in some union cases and so on. And I don't, den I don't deny that. And so as a citizen, uh, I think it's important uh, to be active also potentially in the process of constitutional amendment. It sounds, it sounds hard. It sounds hard. Uh, I will say that I'm working on a project with the National Constitution Center where they're getting conservative, libertarian, and progressive professors together to propose amendments to the Constitution. And we've come to some pretty solid agreement on changing impeachment standards, on uh, changing part of the legislative process, making the appointment, making the um, confirmation and appointment process for judges and term limits for judges. Uh, so change is possible. Maybe it's because I'm relatively young and naive and op optimistic, right? More optimistic than I should be. Uh, but I think we the people, through our democratic legislatures in the states, through Congress, and even potentially through the amendment process, uh, have the ability to achieve the kind of society uh, that we want without the Supreme Court telling us what our society should be. Before you go, though, I want you to tell me more about your book, where I could buy it, how I can get it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So my recent book on the 14th Amendment, which I mentioned earlier, it's called The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. And you can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's uh, it's just like about 20 bucks, I think. Maybe it's also a bit on sale uh, right now. And then my first book, which you can also get on Amazon, uh, is called A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. And we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but that phrase, a debt against the living, comes from this letter from James Madison to Thomas Jefferson, where Jefferson famously said the earth belongs to the living and you know and madison's response was well the improvements like the constitution made by the dead form a debt against the living and that's where that that title comes from and it is also only 135 pages also only 20 dollars, and has a really fantastic cover so i hope you check out my page on amazon thank you for coming in thank you thanks for listening to is that even legal Remember, this isn't legal advice. If you have a legal question for yourself, reach out to an attorney. Remember that we're fun, we're lovable, and we are here to help you. To my listeners in 62 countries across the world, if you have something you want to explore, email us at producer at evenlegal.com. And don't be shy about leaving a review for this podcast on your favorite podcast forum. See you next time.